Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 21 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 21. A Shrewd Conjecture. The test of which I speak was as follows. I would advertise for a person dressed, as I believed Mrs. Van Burnham to have been when she left the scene of crime. If I received news of such a person, I might safely consider my theory established. I accordingly wrote the following advertisement. Information wanted of a woman who applied for lodgings on the morning of the 18th, dressed in a brown silk skirt and a black and white plaid blouse of fashionable cut. She was without a hat, or if a person so dressed wore a hat, then it was bought early in the morning at some store, in which case let shopkeepers take notice. The person answering this description is eagerly sought for by her relatives, and to anyone giving positive information of the same, a liberal reward will be paid. Please address T.W. Alvord, Liberty Street. I purposely did not mention her personal appearance, for fear of attracting the attention of the police. This done, I wrote the following letter. Dear Miss Ferguson, one clever woman recognizes another. I am clever and am not ashamed to own it. You are clever and should not be ashamed to be told so. I was a witness at the inquest in which you so notably distinguished yourself, and I said then, there is a woman after my own heart. But a truce to compliments. What I want and ask of you to procure for me is a photograph of Mrs. Van Burnham. I am a friend of the family and consider them to be in more trouble than they deserve. If I had her picture, I would show it to the Mrs. Van Burnham, who feel great remorse at their treatment of her and who want to see how she looked. Cannot you find one in their rooms? The one in Mr. Howard's room here has been confiscated by the police. Hoping that you will feel disposed to oblige me in this, and I assure you that my motives in making this request are most excellent, I remain cordially yours, Amelia Butterworth. P.S. Address me, if you please, at 564 Avenue, care of J. H. Denham. This was my grocer, with whom I left word the next morning to deliver this package in the next bushel of potatoes he sent me. My smart little maid, Lena, carried these two communications to the east side, where she posted the letter herself, and entrusted the advertisement to a lover of hers, who carried it to the Herald office. While she was gone I tried to rest by exercising my mind in other directions but I could not. I kept going over Howard's testimony in the light of my own theory, 
and remarking how the difficulty he experienced in maintaining the position he had taken forced him into inconsistencies and far-fetched explanations with his wife for a companion at the hotel d his conduct both there and on the road to his father's house was that of a much weaker man than his words and appearance led one to believe but if on the contrary he had with him a woman with whom he was about to elope and what did the packing up of all his effects mean if not that all the precautions they took seemed reasonable later my mind fixed itself on one point if it was his wife who was with him as he said then the bundle they dropped at the old woman's feet contained the much talked of plaid silk if it was not then it was a gown of some different material now could this bundle be found if it could then why had not mr gryce produced it the sight of mrs van burnham's plaid silk spread out on the coroner's table would have had a great effect in clinching the suspicion against her husband but no plaid silk had been found because it was not dropped in the bundle but worn away on the murderess's back and no old woman i thought i knew the reason for this too there was no old woman to be found and the bundle they carried had been got rid of in some other way what way i would take a walk down that same block and see and i would take it at the midnight hour too for only so could i judge of the possibilities there offered for concealing or destroying such an article having made this decision i cast about to see how i could carry it into effect i am not a coward but i have a respectability to maintain and what errand could miss butterworth be supposed to have in the streets at twelve o'clock at night fortunately i remembered that my cook had complained of a toothache when i gave her my orders for breakfast and going down at once into the kitchen where she sat with her cheek propped in her hand waiting for lena i said with an asperity which admitted of no reply you have a dreadful tooth sarah and you must have something done for it at once when lena comes home send her to me i am going to the drug store for some drops and i want lena to accompany me she looked astounded of course but i would not let her answer me do not speak a word i cried it will only make your toothache worse and don't look as if some hobgoblin had jumped up on the kitchen table i guess i know my duty and just what kind of a breakfast i will have in the morning if you sit up all night groaning with the toothache and i was out of the room before she had more than begun to say that it was not so bad and that i needn't trouble and all that which was true enough no doubt but not what i wanted to hear at that moment when lena came in i saw by the brightness of her face that she had accomplished her double errand i therefore signified to her that i was satisfied and asked if she was too tired to go out again saying quite peremptorily that sarah was ill and that i was going to the drug store for some medicine and did not wish to go alone lena's round-eyed wonder was amusing but she is very discreet as i have said before and she ventured nothing save a meek it's very late miss butterworth which was an unnecessary remark as she soon saw i do not like to obtrude my aristocratic tendencies 
too much into this narrative, but when I found myself in the streets alone with Lena, I could not help feeling some secret qualms lest my conduct savored of impropriety. But the thought that I was working in the cause of truth and justice came to sustain me, and before I had gone two blocks, I felt as much at home under the midnight skies as if I were walking home from church on a Sunday afternoon. There is a certain drug store on Third Avenue where I like to deal, and towards this I ostensibly directed my steps. But I took pains to go by the way of Lexington Avenue and 27th Street, and upon reaching the block where this mysterious couple were seen, gave all my attention to the possible hiding places it offered. Lena, who had followed me like my shadow, and who was evidently too dumbfounded at my freak to speak, drew up to my side as we were halfway down it and seized me tremblingly by the arm. Two men are coming, said she. I am not afraid of men, was my sharp rejoinder. But I told a most abominable lie, for I am afraid of them in such places and under such circumstances, though not under ordinary conditions, and never where the tongue is likely to be the only weapon employed. The couple who were approaching us now seemed to be in a merry mood, but when they saw us keep to our own side of the way, they stopped their chaffing and allowed us to go by, with just a mocking word or two. "'Sarah ought to be very much obliged to you,' whispered Lena. At the corner of Third Avenue I paused. I had seen nothing so far but bare stoops and dark areaways, nothing to suggest a place for the disposal of such cumbersome articles as these persons had made way with. Had the avenue anything better to offer? I stopped under the gas lamp at the corner to consider, notwithstanding Lena's gentle pulls toward the drug store. Looking to left and right and over the muddy crossings, I sought for inspiration. An almost obstinate belief in my own theory led me to insist in my own mind that they had encountered no old woman and consequently had not dropped their bundles in the open street. I even entered into an argument about it, standing there with the cable cars whistling by me and Lena tugging away at my arm. If, said I to myself, the woman with him had been his wife, and the whole thing nothing more than a foolish escapade, they might have done this. But she was not his wife, and the game they were playing was serious. If they did laugh over it, and so their disposal of these tell-tale articles would be serious, and such as would protect their secret, where then could they have thrust them? My eyes, as I muttered this, were on the one shop in my line of vision that was still open and lighted. It was the den of a Chinese laundryman, and through the windows, in front, I could see him still at work, ironing. Ah, thought I, and made such a start across the street that Lena gasped in dismay, and almost fell to the ground in her frightened attempt to follow me. Not that way, she called. Miss Butterworth, you are going wrong. But I kept right on, and only stopped when I reached the laundry. I have an errand here, I explained. Wait in the doorway, Lena, and don't act as if you thought me crazy, for I was never saner in my life. I don't think this reassured her much, lunatics not being supposed to be very good judges of their own mental condition. 
but she was so accustomed to obey that she drew back as I opened the door before me and entered. The surprise on the face of the poor Chinaman when he turned and saw before him a lady of years and no ordinary appearance daunted me for an instant. But another look only showed me that his very surprise was inoffensive, and gathering courage from the unexpectedness of my own position, I inquired with all the politeness I could show one of his abominable nationality. Didn't a gentleman and a heavily veiled lady leave a package with you a few days ago, at about the same hour of night as this? Some lele clothes washy? Yes, ma'am. No done. She telly me no collie for one week. Then that's all right. The lady has died very suddenly, and the gentleman gone away. You will have to keep the clothes a long time. Me wanty money, no wanty clothes. I'll pay for them. I don't care about them being ironed. Givey ticky, givey clo. No givey ticky, no givey clo. This was a poser, but as I did not want the clothes so much as a look at them, I soon got the better of this difficulty. I don't want them tonight, said I. I only wanted to make sure you had them. What night were these people here? Tuesday night, very late. Nicey man, nicey lady. She wanty talk. Nicey man, he pulley she. I no hear if muchy stash. All washy, see, he went on, dragging a basket out of the corner. Him no ayan. I was in such a quiver, so struck with amazement at my own perspicacity in surmising that here was a place where a bundle of underclothing could be lost indefinitely, that I just stared while he turned over the clothes in the basket for by means of the quality of the articles he was preparing to show me, the question which had been agitating me for hours could be definitely decided. If they proved to be fine and of foreign manufacture, then Howard's story was true, and all my fine-spun theories must fall to the ground. But if, on the contrary, they were such as are usually worn by American women, then my own idea as to the identity of the woman who left them here was established, and I could safely consider her as the victim and Louise Van Burnham as the murderess, unless further facts came to prove that he was the guilty one after all. The sight of Lena's eyes staring at me with great anxiety through the panes of the door distracted my attention for a moment, and when I looked again, he was holding up two or three garments before me. The articles thus revealed told their story in a moment. They were far from fine, and had even less embroidery on them than I expected. Are there any marks on them? I asked. He showed me two letters stamped in indelible ink on the band of the skirt. I did not have my glasses with me, but the ink was black, and I read, O. R. The minx's initials, thought I. When I left the place, my complacency was such that Lena did not know what to make of me. She has since informed me that I looked as if I wanted to shout hurrah, but I cannot believe I so far forgot myself as that. But pleased as I was, I had only discovered how one bundle had been disposed of. The dress and outside fixings still had to be accounted for, and I was the woman to do it. 
We had mechanically moved in the direction of the drugstore, and were near the curbstone when I reached this point in my meditations. It had rained a little while before, and a small stream was running down the gutter and emptying itself into the sewer opening. The sight of it sharpened my wits. If I wanted to get rid of anything of damaging character, I would drop it at the mouth of one of these holes and gently thrust it into the sewer with my foot, thought I, and never doubting that I had found an explanation of the disappearance of the second bundle, I walked on, deciding that if I had the police at my command, I would have the sewer searched at those four corners. We rode home after visiting the drugstore. I was not going to subject Lena or myself to another midnight walk through 27th Street. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 A Blank Card The next day at noon, Lena brought me up a card on her tray. It was a perfectly blank one. Miss Van Burnham's maid said you sent for this, was her demure announcement. Miss Van Burnham's maid is right, said I, taking the card and with it a fresh installment of courage. Nothing happened for two days, then there came word from the kitchen that a bushel of potatoes had arrived. Going down to see them, I drew from their midst a large square envelope, which I immediately carried to my room. It failed to contain a photograph, but there was a letter in it, couched in these terms. Dear Miss Butterworth, the esteem which you are good enough to express for me is returned. I regret that I cannot oblige you. There are no photographs to be found in Mrs. Van Burnham's rooms. Perhaps this fact may be accounted for by the curiosity shown in these apartments by a very spruce new boarder we have had from New York. His taste for that particular quarter of the house was such that I could not keep him away from it except by lock and key. If there was a picture there of Mrs. Van Burnham, he took it, for he departed very suddenly one night. I am glad he took nothing more with him. The talks he had with my servant girl have almost led to my dismissing her. Praying your pardon for the disappointment I am forced to give you, I remain yours sincerely, Susan Ferguson. So, so, balked by an emissary of Mr. Grice. Well, well, we would do without the photograph. Mr. Grice might need it, but not Amelia Butterworth. This was on Thursday, and on the evening of Saturday the long-desired clue was given me. It came in the shape of a letter brought me by Mr. Alvord. Our interview was not an agreeable one. Mr. Alvord is a clever man, and an adroit one, or I should not persist in employing him as my lawyer. But he has never understood me. At this time, and with this letter in his hand, he understood me less than ever, which naturally called out my powers of self-assertion, and led to some lively conversation between us. But that is neither here nor there. He had brought me an answer to my advertisement, and I was presently engrossed by it. It was an uneducated woman's epistle, and its chirography and spelling were dreadful so I will just mention its contents, which were highly interesting in themselves, as I think you will acknowledge. She, that is, the writer, whose name, as nearly as I could make out, was Bertha Desberger, 
knew such a person as I described and could give me news of her if I would come to her house in West Ninth Street at four o'clock Sunday afternoon. If I would, I think my face must have shown my satisfaction, for Mr. Elvord, who was watching me, sarcastically remarked, "'You don't seem to find any difficulties in that communication. Now what do you think of this one?' He held out another letter, which had been directed to him, and which he had opened. Its contents called up a shade of color to my cheek, for I did not want to go through the annoyance of explaining myself again. Dear Sir, from a strange advertisement which has lately appeared in the Herald, I gather that information is wanted of a young woman who, on the morning of the 18th, entered my store without any bonnet on her head, and saying she had met with an accident, bought a hat which she immediately put on. She was pale as a girl could be, and looked so ill that I asked her if she was well enough to be out alone, but she gave me no reply and left the store as soon as possible. That is all I can tell you about her. With this was enclosed his card, Phineas Cox, Milnery, Trimmed and Untrimmed Hats, 6th Avenue. Now what does this mean? asked Mr. Elvord. The morning of the 18th was the morning when the murder was discovered, in which you have shown such interest. It means, I retorted with some spirit, for simple dignity was thrown away on this man, that I made a mistake in choosing your office as a medium for my business communications. This was to the point, and he said no more, though he eyed the letter in my hand very curiously, and seemed more than tempted to renew the hostilities with which we had opened our interview. Had it not been Saturday, and late in the day at that, I would have visited Mr. Cox's store before I slept, but as it was I felt obliged to wait until Monday. Meanwhile I had before me the still more important interview with Mrs. Desberger. As I had no reason to think that my visiting any number in Ninth Street would arouse suspicion in the police, I rode there quite boldly the next day, and with Lena at my side, entered the house of Mrs. Bertha Desberger. For this trip I had dressed myself plainly, and drawn over my eyes, and the puffs, which I still think it becoming in a woman of my age to wear, a dotted veil, thick enough to conceal my features, without robbing me of that aspect of benignity necessary to the success of my mission. Lena wore her usual neat gray dress, and looked the picture of all virtues. A large brass door-plate, well rubbed, was the first sign vouchsafed us of the respectability of the house we were about to enter, and the parlor, when we were ushered into it, fully carried out the promise thus held forth on the doorstep. It was respectable, but in wretched taste as regards to colors. I, who have the nicest taste in such matters, looked about me in dismay as I encountered the greens and blues, the crimsons and purples, which everywhere surrounded me. But I was not on a visit to a temple of art, and resolutely shutting my eyes to the offending splendor about me, worsted splendor, you understand, I waited with subdued expectation for the lady of the house. She came in presently, bedecked in a flowered gown, that was an epitome of the blaze of colors everywhere surrounding us. But her face was a good one, 
and I saw that I had neither guile nor overmuch shrewdness to contend with. She had seen the coach at the door, and she was all smiles and flutter. "'You have come for the poor girl who stopped here a few days ago,' she began, glancing from my face to Lena's, with an equally inquiring air, which in itself would have shown her utter ignorance of social distinctions, if I had not bidden Lena to keep at my side and hold her head up as if she had business there as well as myself. "'Yes,' returned I, "'we have.' Lena here has lost a relative, which was true, and knowing no other way of finding her, I suggested the insertion of an advertisement in the paper. You read the description given, of course. Has the person answering it been in this house? Yes, she came on the morning of the 18th. I remember it because that was the very day my cook left, and I have not got another one yet. She sighed and went on. I took a great interest in the unhappy young woman. Was she your sister? This somewhat doubtfully to Lena, who perhaps had too few colors on to suit her. No, answered Lena, she wasn't my sister, but... I immediately took the words out of her mouth. At what time did she come here, and how long did she stay? We want to find her very much. Did she give you any name, or tell where she was going? She said her name was Oliver. I thought of the O-R on the clothes at the laundry. But I knew this wasn't so, and if she had not looked so very modest, I might have hesitated to take her in. But, lor, I can't resist a girl in trouble, and she was in trouble, if ever a girl was. And then she had money. Do you know what her trouble was? This again to Lena, and with an air at once suspicious and curious. But Lena had a good face, too, and her frank eyes at once disarmed the weak and good-natured woman before us. I thought, she went on, before Lena could answer, that whatever it was, you had nothing to do with it, nor this lady either. No, answered Lena, seeing that I wished her to do the talking. And we don't know, which was true enough, so far as Lena went, just what her trouble was. Didn't she tell you? She told nothing. When she came, she said she wanted to stay with me a little while. I sometimes take boarders. She had twenty in the house at that minute, if she had one. Did she think I couldn't see the length of her dining-room table through the crack of the parlor door? I can pay, she said, which I had not doubted, for her blouse was a very expensive one though I thought her skirt looked queer, and her hat. Did I say she had a hat on? You seem to doubt that fact in your advertisement. Goodness me, if she had had no hat on, she wouldn't have got as far as my parlor mat. But her blouse showed her to be a lady, and then her face. It was as white as your handkerchief there, madam, but so sweet. I thought of the Madonna faces I had seen in the Catholic churches. I started inwardly commenting, Madonna-like, that woman? But a glance at the room about me reassured me. The owner of such hideous sofas and chairs, and of the many pictures effacing, or rather defacing, the paper on the walls, could not be a judge of Madonna faces. You admire everything that is good and lovely, I suggested, for Mrs. Desberger had paused at the movement I made. Yes, it is in my nature to do so, madam. 
I love the beautiful, and she cast a half-apologetic, half-proud look about her. So I listened to the girl and let her sit down in my parlor. She had had nothing to eat that morning, and though she didn't ask for it, I went to order her a cup of tea, for I knew she couldn't get upstairs without it. Her eyes followed me when I went out of the room in a way that haunted me, and when I came back, I shall never forget it, ma'am. There she lay, stretched out on the floor, with her face on the ground, and her hands thrown out. Wasn't it horrible, ma'am? I don't wonder you shudder. Did I shudder? If I did, it was because I was thinking of that other woman, the victim of this one, whom I had seen with her face turned upward, and her arms outstretched, in the gloom of Mr. Van Burnham's half-closed parlor. She looked as if she was dead, the good woman continued. But just as I was about to call for help, her fingers moved, and I rushed to lift her. She was neither dead nor had she fainted. She was simply dumb with misery. What could have happened to her? I have asked myself a hundred times. My mouth was shut very tight, but I shut it still tighter, for the temptation was great to cry. She had just committed murder. As it was, no sound whatever left my lips, and the good woman doubtless thought me no better than a stone, for she turned with a shrug to Lena, repeating still more wistfully than before, Don't you know what her trouble was? But of course poor Lena had nothing to say, and the woman went on with a sigh. Well, I suppose I shall never know what had used that poor creature up so completely, but whatever it was it gave me enough trouble, though I do not want to complain of it, for why are we here if not to help and comfort the miserable? It was an hour, ma'am, it was an hour, miss, before I could get that poor girl to speak. But when I did succeed, and had got her to drink the tea and eat a bit of toast, then I felt quite repaid by the look of gratitude she gave me, and the way she clung to my sleeve when I tried to leave her for a minute. It was this sleeve, ma'am, she explained, lifting a cluster of rainbow flounces and ribbons, which but a minute before had looked little short of ridiculous in my eyes, but which in the light of the wearer's kind-heartedness had lost some of their offensive appearance. "'Poor Mary,' murmured Lena, with what I considered most admirable presence of mind. "'What name did you say?' cried Mrs. Desberger, eager enough to learn all she could of her late mysterious lodger. "'I had rather not tell her name,' protested Lena, with a timid air that admirably fitted her rather doll-like prettiness. She didn't tell you what it was, and I don't think I ought to. Good for little Lena, and she did not even know for whom or what she was playing the role I had set her. I thought you said Mary, but I won't be inquisitive with you. I wasn't so with her. But where was I in my story? Oh, I got her so she could speak, and afterwards I helped her upstairs. But she didn't stay there long. When I came back at lunchtime, I have to do my marketing no matter what happens. I found her sitting before a table with her head on her hands. She had been weeping, but her face was quite composed now and almost hard. Oh, you good woman, she cried when I came in. I want to thank you. But I wouldn't let her go on wasting words like that. And presently she was saying quite wildly, 
I want to begin a new life. I want to act as if I had never had a yesterday. I have had trouble, overwhelming trouble, but I will get something out of existence yet. I will live, and in order to do so, I will work. Have you a paper, Mrs. Desberger? I want to look at the advertisements. I brought her a herald and went to preside at my lunch table. When I saw her again, she looked almost cheerful. I have found just what I want, she cried, a companion's place. But I cannot apply in this dress, and she looked at the great puffs of her silk blouse as if they gave her the horrors. Though why, I cannot imagine, for they were in the latest style and rich enough for a millionaire's daughter, though as to colors I like brighter ones myself. Would you, she was very timid about it, buy me some things if I gave you the money? If there is one thing more than another that I like, it is to shop. So I expressed my willingness to oblige her, and that afternoon I set out with a nice little sum of money to buy her some clothes. I should have enjoyed it more if she had let me do my own choosing. I saw the loveliest pink and green blouse, but she was very set about what she wanted, and so I just got her some plain things, which I think even you, ma'am, would have approved of. I brought them home myself, for she wanted to apply immediately for the place she had seen advertised. But, oh dear, when I went up to her room, was she gone? burst in Lena. Oh no, but there was such a smudge in it, and, and, I could cry when I think of it. There in the grate were the remains of her beautiful silk blouse, all smoking and ruined. She had tried to burn it, and she had succeeded, too. I could not get a piece out as big as my hand. But you got some of it, blurted out Lena, guided by a look which I gave her. Yes, scraps. It was so handsome. I think I have a bit in my work basket now. Oh, get it for me, urged Lena. I want it to remember her by. My work basket is here, and going to a sort of etagere, covered with a thousand knick-knacks picked up at bargain counters, she opened a little cupboard and brought out a basket, from which she presently pulled a small square of silk. It was, as she said, of the richest weaving, and was, as I had not the least doubt, a portion of the dress worn by Mrs. Van Burnham from Haddam. Yes, it was hers, said Lena, reading the expression of my face, and putting the scrap away very carefully in her pocket. Well, I would have given her five dollars for that blouse, murmured Mrs. Desberger regretfully. But girls like her are so improvident. And did she leave that day, I asked, seeing that it was hard for this woman to tear her thoughts away from this coveted article. Yes, ma'am, it was late, and I had but little hopes of her getting the situation she was after. But she promised to come back if she didn't, and as she did not come back, I decided that she was more successful than I had anticipated. And don't you know where she went? Didn't she confide in you at all? No, but as there were but three advertisements for a lady companion in the Herald that day, it will be easy to find her. Would you like to see those advertisements? I saved them out of curiosity. I assented, as you may believe, and she brought us the clippings at once. Two of them I read without emotion, but the third almost took my breath away. 
It was an advertisement for a lady companion, accustomed to the typewriter, and of some taste in dressmaking, and the address given was that of Miss Althorpe. If this woman, steeped in misery and darkened by crime, should be there, as I shall not mention Mrs. Desberger again for some time, I will here say that at the first opportunity which presented itself, I sent Lena to the shops with orders to buy and have sent to Mrs. Desberger the ugliest and most flaunting of silk blouses that could be found on Sixth Avenue, and as Lena's dimples were more than usually pronounced on her return, I have no doubt that she chose one to suit the taste and warm the body of the estimable woman whose kind nature had made such a favorable impression upon me. End of chapter 22「for the purpose of satisfying myself at once as to the presence there of the unhappy fugitive I was tracing. Six o'clock Sunday night is not a favorable hour for calling at a young lady's house, especially when that young lady has a lover who is in the habit of taking tea with the family. But I was in a mood to transgress all rules, and even to forget the rights of lovers. Besides, much is forgiven a woman of my stamp, especially by a person of the good sense and amiability of Miss Althorpe. That I was not mistaken in my calculations was evident from the greeting I received. Miss Althorpe came forward as graciously and with as little surprise in her manner as any one could expect under the circumstances and for a moment I was so touched by her beauty and the unaffected charm of her manners that I forgot my errand and only thought of the pleasure of meeting a lady who fairly comes up to the standard one has secretly set for oneself. Of course she is much younger than I, some say she is only twenty-three, but a lady is a lady at any age, and Ella Althorpe might be a model for a much older woman than myself. The room in which we were seated was a large one, and though I could hear Mr. Stone's voice in the adjoining apartment, I did not fear to broach the subject I had come to discuss. You may think this intrusion an odd one, I began, but I believe you advertised a few days ago for a young lady companion. Have you been suited, Miss Althorpe? Oh, yes, I have a young person with me whom I like very much. Ah, you are supplied. Is she anyone you know? No, she is a stranger, and what is more, she brought no recommendations with her. But her appearance is so attractive, and her desire for the place was so great, that I consented to try her. And she is very satisfactory, poor girl, very satisfactory indeed. Ah, here was an opportunity for questions. Without showing too much eagerness, and yet with a proper show of interest, I smilingly remarked, 
no one can be called poor long who remains under your roof miss althorpe but perhaps she has lost friends so many nice girls are thrown upon their own resources by the death of relatives she does not wear mourning but she is in some great trouble for all that but this cannot interest you miss butterworth have you some protege whom you wish to recommend for the position i heard her but did not answer at once in fact i was thinking how to proceed should i take her into my confidence or should i continue the ambiguous manner in which i had begun seeing her smile i became conscious of the awkward silence pardon me said i resuming my best manner but there is something i want to say which may strike you as peculiar oh no she said i am interested in the girl you have befriended and for very different reasons from those you suppose i fear i have great reason to fear that she is not just the person you would like to harbor under your roof indeed why what do you know about her anything bad miss butterworth i shook my head and prayed her first to tell me how the girl looked and under what circumstances she came to her for i was desirous of making no mistake concerning her identity with the person of whom i was in search she is a sweet-looking girl was the answer i received not beautiful but interesting in expression and manner she has brown hair i shuddered brown eyes and a mouth that would be lovely if it ever smiled in fact she is very attractive and so ladylike that i have desired to make a companion of her but while attentive to all her duties and manifestly grateful to me for the home i have given her she shows so little desire for company or conversation that i have desisted for the last day or so from urging her to speak at all but you asked me under what circumstances she came to me yes on what day and what time of day was she dressed well or did her clothes look shabby she came on the very day i advertised the eighteenth yes it was the eighteenth of this month and she was dressed so far as i noticed very neatly indeed her clothes appeared to be new they needed to have been for she brought nothing with her save what was contained in a small handbag also new i suggested very likely i did not observe oh miss althorpe i exclaimed this time with considerable vehemence i fear or rather i hope she is the woman i want you want yes i-but i cannot tell you for what just yet i must be sure for i would not subject an innocent person to suspicion any more than you would suspicion she is not honest then that would worry me miss butterworth for the house is full now as you know of wedding presents and-but i cannot believe such a thing of her it is some other fault she has less despicable and degrading i do not say she has any faults i only said i feared what name does she go by oliver ruth oliver again i thought of the o r on the clothes in the laundry i wish i could see her i ventured i would give anything for a peep at her face unobserved i don't know how i can manage that she is very shy and never shows herself in the front of the house she even dines in her own room having begged for that privilege till after i was married and the household settled on a new basis but you can go to her room with me if she is all right she can have no objection to a visitor and if she is not 
it would be well for me to know it at once. Certainly, said I, and rose to follow her, turning over in my mind how I should account to this young woman for my intrusion. I had just arrived at what I considered a sensible conclusion, when Miss Althorpe, leaning towards me, said with a whole-souled impetuosity for which I could not but admire her, the girl is very nervous. She looks and acts like a person who has had some frightful shock. Don't alarm her, Miss Butterworth, and don't accuse her of anything wrong too suddenly. Perhaps she is innocent, and perhaps, if she is not innocent, she has been driven into evil by very great temptations. I am sorry for her, whether she is simply unhappy or deeply remorseful, for I never saw a sweeter face or eyes with such boundless depths of misery in them. Just what Mrs. Desberger had said. Strange, but I began to feel a certain sort of sympathy for the wretched being I was hunting down. I will be careful, said I. I merely want to satisfy myself that she is the same girl I heard of last from a Mrs. Desberger. Miss Althorpe, who was now halfway up the rich staircase, which makes her house one of the most remarkable in the city, turned and gave me a quick look over her shoulder. I don't know Mrs. Desberger, she remarked, at which I smiled. Did she think Mrs. Desberger in society? At the end of an upper passageway we paused. This is the door, whispered Miss Althorpe. Perhaps I had better go in first and see if she is at all prepared for company. I was glad to have her do so for I felt as if I needed to prepare myself for encountering this young woman, over whom, in my mind, hung the dreadful suspicion of murder. But the time between Miss Althorpe's knock and her entrance, short as it was, was longer than that which elapsed, between her going in and her hasty reappearance. "'You can have your wish,' she said. "'She is lying on her bed asleep, and you can see her without being observed. But,' she entreated with a passionate grip of my arm which proclaimed her warm nature doesn't it seem a little like taking advantage of her circumstances justify it in this case i replied admiring the consideration of my hostess but not thinking it worth while to emulate it and with very little ceremony i pushed open the door and entered the room of the so-called ruth oliver the hush and quiet which met me though nothing more than I had reason to expect, gave me my first shock, and the young figure outstretched on a bed of dainty whiteness was my second. Everything about me was so peaceful, and the delicate blue and white of the room so expressive of innocence and repose, that my feet instinctively moved more softly over the polished floor and paused, when they did pause, before that dimly shrouded bed with something like hesitation in their usual emphatic tread. The face of that bed's occupant, which I could now plainly see, may have had an influence in producing this effect. It was so rounded with health and yet so haggard with trouble. Not knowing whether Miss Althorpe was behind me or not, but too intent upon the sleeping girl to care, I bent over the half-averted features and studied them carefully. They were indeed Madonna-like, something which I had not expected, notwithstanding the assurances I had received to that effect, and while distorted with suffering, 
amply accounted for the interest shown in her by the good-hearted Mrs. Desberger and the cultured Miss Althorpe. Resenting this beauty, which so poorly accommodated itself to the character of the woman who possessed it, I leaned nearer, searching for some defect in her loveliness, when I saw that the struggle and anguish visible in her expression were due to some dream she was having. Moved, even against my will, by the touching sight of her trembling eyelids and working mouth, I was about to wake her when I was stopped by the gentle touch of Miss Althorpe on my shoulder. Is she the young girl you are looking for? I gave one quick glance around the room, and my eyes lighted on the little blue pincushion on the satin wood bureau. Did you put those pins there? I asked, pointing to a dozen or more black pins grouped in one corner. I did not, no, and I doubt if Crescenza did. Why? I drew a small black pin from my belt where I had securely fastened it, and carrying it over to the cushion compared it with those I saw. They were identical. A small matter, I inwardly decided, but it points in the right direction. Then, in answer to Miss Althorpe, added aloud, I fear she is. At least I have seen no reason yet for doubting it. But I must make sure. Will you allow me to wake her? Oh, it seems cruel. She is suffering enough already. See how she twists and turns. It will be a mercy, it seems to me, to rouse her from the dreams so full of pain and trouble. Perhaps, but I will leave you alone to do it. What will you say to her? How account for your intrusion? Oh, I will find means, and they won't be too cruel, either. You had better stand back by the bureau and listen. I think I had rather not have the responsibility of doing this thing alone. Miss Althorpe, not understanding my hesitation, and only half comprehending my errand, gave me a doubtful look, but retreated to the spot I had mentioned, and whether it was the rustle of her silk dress, or whether the dream of the girl we were watching had reached its climax, a momentary stir took place in the outstretched form before me, and next moment she was flinging up her hands with a cry. "'Oh, how can I touch her? She is dead!' and I have never touched a dead body. I fell back, breathing hard, and Miss Althorpe's eyes, meeting mine, grew dark with horror. Indeed, she was about to utter a cry herself, but I made an imperative motion, and she merely shrank farther away towards the door. Meantime, I had bent forward and laid my hand on the trembling figure before me. "'Miss Oliver,' I said, Rouse yourself, I pray. I have a message for you from Mrs. Desberger. She turned her head, looked at me like a person in a daze, then slowly moved and sat up. Who are you? she asked, surveying me and the space about her with eyes which seemed to take in nothing till they lit upon Miss Althorpe's figure, standing in an attitude of mingled shame and sympathy by the half-open door. Oh, Miss Althorpe, she entreated, I pray you to excuse me. I did not know you wanted me. I have been asleep. It is this lady who wants you, answered Miss Althorpe. She is a friend of mine and one in whom you can confide. Confide? This was a word to rouse her. She turned, livid, and in her eyes, as she looked my way, both terror and surprise were visible. Why should you think I had anything to confide? 
"'If I had, I should not pass by you, Miss Althorpe, for another.' There were tears in her voice, and I had to remember the victim, Jess laid away in Woodlawn, not to bestow much more compassion on this woman than she rightfully deserved. She had a magnetic voice and a magnetic presence, but that was no reason why I should forget what she had done. No one asks for your confidence, I protested, though it might not hurt you to accept a friend whenever you can get one. I merely wish, as I said before, to give you a message from Mrs. Desberger, under whose roof you stayed before coming here. I am obliged to you, she responded, rising to her feet, and trembling very much. Mrs. Desberger is a kind woman. What does she want of me? So I was on the right track, she acknowledged Mrs. Desberger. Nothing but to return you this. It fell out of your pocket while you were dressing and I handed her the little red pincushion I had taken from the Van Burnham's front room. She looked at it, shrunk violently back, and with difficulty prevented herself from showing the full depth of her feelings. I don't know anything about it. It is not mine. I don't know it. And her hair stirred on her forehead as she gazed at the small object lying in the palm of my hand proving to me that she saw again before her all the horrors of the house from which it had been taken. "'Who are you?' she suddenly demanded, tearing her eyes from the simple little pincushion and fixing them wildly on my face. "'Mrs. Desberger never sent me this. I—' "'You are right to stop there,' I interposed, and then paused, feeling that I had forced a situation which I hardly knew how to handle." The instant's pause she had given herself seemed to restore her self-possession. Leaving me, she moved towards Miss Althorpe. "'I don't know who this lady is,' she said, "'or what her errand here with me may mean, "'but I hope that it is nothing that will force me to leave this house "'which is my only refuge.' Miss Althorpe, too greatly prejudiced in favour of this girl to hear this appeal unmoved, notwithstanding the show of guilt with which she had met my attack smiled faintly as she answered nothing short of the best reasons would make me part from you now if there are such reasons you will spare me the pain of making use of them i think i can so far trust you miss oliver no answer the young girl looked as if she could not speak are there any reasons why i should not retain you in my house miss oliver the gentle mistress of many millions went on if there are you will not wish to stay i know when you consider how near my marriage day is and how undisturbed my mind should be by any cares unattending my wedding and still the girl was silent though her lips moved slightly as if she would have spoken if she could but perhaps you are only unfortunate, suggested Miss Althorpe, with an almost angelic look of pity. I don't often see angels in women. If that is so, God forbid that you should leave my protection or my house. What do you say, Miss Oliver? That you are God's messenger to me, burst from the other, as if her tongue had been suddenly loosed. That misfortune and not wickedness has driven me to your doors, and that there is no reason why I should leave you, unless my secret sufferings make my presence unwelcome to you. Was this the talk of a frivolous woman caught unawares in the meshes of a fearful crime? If so, she was a more accomplished actress than we had been led to expect, 
even from her own words to her disgusted husband. "'You look like one accustomed to telling the truth,' proceeded Miss Althorpe. "'Do you not think you have made some mistake, Miss Butterworth?' she asked, approaching me with an ingenuous smile. I had forgotten to caution her not to make use of my name, and when it fell from her lips I looked to see her unhappy companion recoil from me with a scream. But strange to say she evinced no emotion, and seeing this I became more distrustful of her than ever. For, for her to hear without apparent interest the name of the chief witness in the inquest which had been held over the remains of the woman, with whose death she had been more or less intimately concerned, argued powers of duplicity such as are only associated with guilt or an extreme simplicity of character. And she was not simple, as the least glance from her deep eyes amply showed. Recognizing, therefore, that open measures would not do with this woman, I changed my manner at once, and responding to Miss Althorpe with a gracious smile, remarked with an air of sudden conviction, Perhaps I have made some mistake. Miss Oliver's words sound very ingenuous, and I am disposed, if you are, to take her at her word. It is so easy to draw false conclusions in this world. And I put back the pincushion into my pocket with an air of being through with the matter, which seemed to impose upon the young woman, for she smiled faintly, showing a row of splendid teeth as she did so. Let me apologize, I went on, if I have intruded upon Miss Oliver against her wishes, and with one comprehensive look about the room, which took in all that was visible of her simple wardrobe and humble belongings, I led the way out. Miss Althorpe immediately followed. This is a much more serious affair than I have led you to suppose, I confided to her as soon as we were at a suitable distance from Miss Oliver's door. If she is the person I think her, she is amenable to law, and the police will have to be notified of her whereabouts. She has stolen, then? Her fault is a very grave one, I returned. Miss Althorpe, deeply troubled, looked about her as if for guidance. I, who could have given it to her, made no movement to attract her attention to myself, but waited calmly for her own decision in this matter. I wish you would let me consult Mr. Stone, she ventured at last. I think his judgment might help us. I had rather take no one into our confidence, especially no man. He would consider your welfare only and not hers. I did not consider myself obliged to acknowledge that the work upon which I was engaged could not be shared by one of the male sex without lessening my triumph over Mr. Grice. Mr. Stone is very just, she remarked, but he might be biased in a matter of this kind. What way do you see out of the difficulty? Only this, to settle at once and unmistakably whether she is the person who carried certain articles from the house of a friend of mine. If she is, there will be some evidence of the fact visible in her room or on her person. She has not been out, I believe. Not since she came into the house, and has remained for the most part in her own apartment, always except when I have summoned her to my assistance. Then what I want to know I can learn there, but how can I make my investigation without offence? What do you want to know, Miss Butterworth? 
whether she has in her keeping some half-dozen rings of considerable value. Oh, she could conceal rings so easily. She does conceal them. I have no more doubt of it than I have of my standing here. But I must know it before I shall feel ready to call the attention of the police to her. Yes, we should both know it. Poor girl, poor girl, to be suspected of a crime. How great must have been her temptation. I can manage this matter, Miss Althorpe, if you will entrust it to me. How, Miss Butterworth? The girl is ill. Let me take care of her. Really ill? Yes, or will be so before morning. There is fever in her veins. She has worried herself ill. Oh, I will be good to her. This in answer to a doubtful look from Miss Althorpe. This is a difficult problem you have set me, the lady remarked after a moment's thought. But anything seems better than sending her away or sending for the police. But do you suppose she will allow you in her room? I think so. If her fever increases, she will not notice much that goes on about her, and I think it will increase. I have seen enough of sickness to be something of a judge. And you will search her while she is unconscious? Don't look so horrified, Miss Althorpe. I have promised you I will not worry her. She may need assistance in getting to bed. While I am giving it to her, I can judge if there is anything concealed upon her person. Yes, perhaps. At all events, we shall know more than we do now. Shall I venture, Miss Althorpe? I cannot say no, was the hesitating answer. You seem so very much in earnest. I am in earnest. I have reasons for being. Consideration for you is one of them. I do not doubt it. And now will you come down to supper, Miss Butterworth? No, I replied. My duty is here. Only send word to Lena that she is to drive home and take care of my house in my absence. I shall want nothing, so do not worry about me. Join your lover now, dear, and do not bestow another thought upon this self-styled Miss Oliver or what I am about to do in her room. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 A House of Cards I did not return immediately to my patient. I waited till her supper came up, then I took the tray, and assured by the face of the girl who brought it that Miss Althorpe had explained my presence in her house sufficiently for me to feel at ease before her servants, I carried the dainty repast she had provided and set it down on the table. The poor woman was standing where we had left her, but her whole figure showed languor, and she more than leaned against the bedpost behind her. As I looked up from the tray and met her eyes, she shuddered and seemed to be endeavoring to understand who I was and what I was doing in her room. My premonitions in regard to her were well based. She was in a raging fever and was already more than half oblivious to her surroundings. Approaching her, I spoke as gently as I could, for her hapless condition appealed to me in spite of my well-founded prejudices against her, and seeing she was growing incapable of response, I drew her up on the bed and began to undress her. I half expected her to recoil at this, or at least to make some show of alarm. But she submitted to my ministrations almost gratefully, and neither shrank nor questioned me till I laid my hands upon her shoes. 
then indeed she quivered and drew her feet away with such an appearance of terror that i was forced to desist from my efforts or drive her into violent delirium this satisfied me that louise van burnam lay before me the scar concerning which so much had been said in the papers would be ever present in the thoughts of this woman as the tell-tale mark by which she might be known and though at this moment she was on the borders of unconsciousness the instinct of self-preservation still remained in sufficient force to prompt her to make this effort to protect herself from discovery i had told miss althorpe that my chief reason for intruding upon miss oliver was to determine if she had in her possession certain rings supposed to have been taken from a friend of mine and while this was in a measure true the rings being an important factor in the proof i was accumulating against her i was not so anxious to search for them at this time as to find the scar which would settle at once the question of her identity when she drew her foot away from me then so violently i saw that i needed to search no farther for the evidence required and could give myself up to making her comfortable so i bathed her temples now throbbing with heat and soon had the satisfaction of seeing her fall into a deep and uneasy slumber then i tried again to draw off her shoes but the start she gave and the smothered cry which escaped her warned me that i must wait yet longer before satisfying my curiosity so i desisted at once and out of pure compassion left her to get what good she might from the lethargy into which she had fallen being hungry or at least feeling the necessity of some slight alignment to help me sustain the fatigues of the night i sat down now at the table and partook of some of the dainties with which miss althorpe had kindly provided me after which i made out a list of such articles as were necessary to my proper care of the patient who had so strangely fallen into my hands and then feeling that i had a right at last to indulge in pure curiosity i turned my attention to the clothing i had taken from the self-styled miss oliver the dress was a simple gray one and the skirts and underclothing all white but the latter was of the finest texture and convinced me before i had given them more than a glance that they were the property of howard van burnam's wife for besides the exquisite quality of the material there were to be seen on the edges of the bands and sleeves the marks of stitches and clinging threads of lace where the trimming had been torn off and in one article especially there were tucks such as you see come from the hands of french needlewomen only this taken with what had gone before was proof enough to satisfy me that i was on the right track and after crescenza had come and gone with the tray and all was quiet in this remote part of the house i ventured to open a closet door at the foot of the bed a brown silk skirt was hanging within and in the pocket of the skirt i found a purse so gay and costly that all doubt vanished as to its being the property of howard's luxurious wife there were several bills in this purse amounting to about fifteen dollars in money but no change and no memoranda which latter seemed a pity restoring the purse to its place and the skirt to its peg i came softly back to the bedside and examined my patient still more carefully than i had done before she was asleep and breathing heavily 
but even with this disadvantage her face had its own attraction an attraction which evidently had more or less influenced men and which for the reason perhaps that i have something masculine in my nature i discovered to be more or less influencing me notwithstanding my hatred of an intriguing character however it was not her beauty i came to study but her hair her complexion and her hands the former was brown the brown of that same lock i remembered to have seen in the jury's hands at the inquest and her skin where fever had not flushed it was white and smooth so were her hands and yet they were not a lady's hands that i noticed when i first saw her the marks of the rings she no longer wore were not enough to blind me to the fact that her fingers lacked the distinctive shape and nicety of miss althorpe's say or even of the mrs van burnham and though i do not object to this for i like strong-looking capable hands myself they served to help me understand the face which otherwise would have looked too spiritual for a woman of the peevish and self-satisfied character of louise van burnham on this innocent and appealing expression she had traded in her short and none too happy career and as i noted it i recalled the sentence in miss ferguson's testimony in which she alluded to mrs van burnham's confidential remark to her husband upon the power she exercised over people when she raised her eyes in entreaty towards them am i not pretty she had said when i am in distress and looking up in this way it was the suggestion of a scheming woman but from what i had seen and was seeing of the woman before me i could imagine the picture she would thus make and i do not think she overrated its effects withdrawing from her side once more i made a tour of the room nothing escaped my eyes nothing was too small to engage my attention but while i failed to see anything calculated to shake my confidence in the conclusions i had come to i saw but little to confirm them this was not strange for apart from the few toilet articles and some knitting work on a shelf she appeared to have no belongings everything else in sight being manifestly the property of miss althorpe even the bureau drawers were empty and her bag found under a small table had not so much in it as a hairpin though i searched it inside and out for her rings which i was positive she had with her even if she dared not wear them when every spot was exhausted i sat down and began to brood over what lay before this poor being whose flight and the great efforts she made at concealment proved only too conclusively the fatal part she had played in the crime for which her husband had been arrested i had reached her arraignment before a magistrate and was already imagining her face with the appeal in it which such an occasion would call forth when there came a low knock at the door and miss althorpe re-entered she had just said good-night to her lover and her face recalled to me a time when my own cheek was round and my eye was bright and well what is the use of dwelling on matters so long buried in oblivion a maiden woman as independent as myself need not envy any girl the doubtful blessing of a husband i chose to be independent and i am and what more is there to be said about it pardon the digression 
"'Is Miss Oliver any better?' asked Miss Althorpe. "'And have you found?' I put up my finger in warning. Of all things it was most necessary that the sick woman should not know my real reason for being there. "'She is asleep,' I answered quietly, "'and I think I have found out what is the matter with her.' Miss Althorpe seemed to understand. She cast a look of solicitude toward the bed and then turned towards me. "'I cannot rest,' said she, "'and will sit with you for a little while if you don't mind.' I felt the implied compliment keenly. "'You can do me no greater favor,' I returned. She drew up an easy chair. "'This is for you,' she smiled, and sat down in a little low rocker at my side." But she did not talk, her thoughts seemed to have recurred to some very near and sweet memory, for she smiled softly to herself, and looked so deeply happy that I could not resist saying, These are delightful days for you, Miss Althorpe. She sighed softly, how much a sigh can reveal, and looked up at me brightly. I think she was glad I spoke. Even such reserved natures as hers have their moments of weakness, and she had no mother or sister to appeal to. Yes, she replied, I am very happy, happier than most girls are, I think, just before marriage. It is such a revelation to me, this devotion and admiration from one I love. I have had so little of it in my life. My father, she stopped. I knew why she stopped. I gave her a look of encouragement. People have always been anxious for my happiness and have warned me against matrimony since I was old enough to know the difference between poverty and wealth. Before I was out of short dresses I was warned against fortune-seekers. It was not good advice. It has stood in the way of my happiness all my life, and made me distrustful and unnaturally reserved. But now, ah, Miss Butterworth, Mr. Stone is so estimable a man, so brilliant and so universally admired, that all my doubts of manly worth and disinterestedness have disappeared as if by magic. I trust him implicitly, and do I talk too freely? Do you object to such confidences as these? On the contrary, I answered, I liked Miss Althorpe so much, and agreed with her so thoroughly in her opinion of this man, that it was a real pleasure to me to hear her speak so unreservedly. We are not a foolish couple, she went on, warming with the charm of her topic, till she looked beautiful in the half-light thrown upon her by the shaded lamp. We are interested in people and things, and get half our delight from the perfect congeniality of our natures. Mr. Stone has given up his club and all his bachelor pursuits since he knew me, and, oh, love, if at any time in my life I have despised thee, I did not despise thee then. The look with which she finished this sentence would have moved a cynic. Forgive me, she prayed. It is the first time I have poured out my heart to any one of my own sex. It must sound strange to you, but it seems natural when I was doing it, for you looked as if you could understand. This to me, to me, Miss Amelia Butterworth of whom men have said I had no more sentiment than a wooden image. I looked my appreciation, and she blushed slightly, whispering in a delicious tone of mingled shyness and pride, 
only two weeks now, and I shall have someone to stand between me and the world. You have never needed anyone, Miss Butterworth, for you do not fear the world, but it awes and troubles me, and my whole heart glows with the thought that I shall be no longer alone in my sorrows or my joys, my perplexities or my doubts. Am I to blame for anticipating this with so much happiness? I sighed. It was a less eloquent sigh than hers, but it was a distinctive one, and it had a distinct echo. Lifting my eyes, for I sat so as to face the bed, I was startled to observe my patient leaning towards us from her pillows, and staring upon us with eyes too hollow for tears, but filled with unfathomable grief and yearning. She had heard this talk of love, she, the forsaken and crime-stained one. I shuddered and laid my hand on Miss Althorpe's, but I did not seek to stop the conversation, for as our looks met, the sick woman fell back and lapsed, or seemed to lapse, into immediate insensibility again. "'Is Miss Oliver worse?' inquired Miss Althorpe. I rose and went to the bedside, renewed the bandages on my patient's head, and forced a drop or two of medicine between her half-shut lips. No, I returned, I think her fever is abating, and it was, though the suffering on her face was yet heart-renderingly apparent. Is she asleep? She seems to be. Miss Althorpe made an effort. I am not going to talk any more about myself. Then, as I came back and sat down by her side, she quietly asked, what do you think of the Van Burnham murder? Dismayed at the introduction of this topic, I was about to put my hand over her mouth when I noticed that her words had made no evident impression upon my patient, who lay quietly and with a more composed expression than when I left her bedside. This assured me, as nothing else could have done, that she was really asleep, or in that lethargic state which closes the eyes and ears to what is going on. I think, said I, that the young man Howard stands in a very unfortunate position. Circumstances certainly do look very black against him. It is dreadful, unprecedentedly dreadful. I do not know what to think of it at all. The Van Burnhams have borne so good a name, and Franklin especially is held in such high esteem. I don't think anything more shocking has ever happened in this city, do you, Miss Butterworth? You saw it all and should know. Poor, poor Mrs. Van Burnham. She is to be pitied, I remarked, my eyes fixed on the immovable face of my patient. When I heard that a young woman had been found dead in the Van Burnham mansion, Miss Althorpe pursued with such evident interest in this new theme that I did not care to interrupt her, unless driven to it by some token of consciousness on the part of my patient. My thoughts flew instinctively to Howard's wife, though why I cannot say, for I never had any reason to expect so tragic a termination to their marriage relations, and I cannot believe now that he killed her, can you, Miss Butterworth? Howard has too much of the gentleman in him to do a brutal thing, and there was brutality as well as adroitness in the perpetration of this crime. Have you thought of that, Miss Butterworth? Yes, I nodded. I have looked at the crime on all sides. Mr. Stone, said she, feels dreadfully over the part he was forced to play at the inquest. But he had no choice. The police would have his testimony. 
That was right, I declared. It has made us doubly anxious to have Howard free himself, but he does not seem able to do so. If his wife had only known... Was there a quiver in the lids I was watching? I half raised my hand and then let it drop again, convinced that I had been mistaken. Miss Elthorpe at once continued. She was not a bad-hearted woman, only vain and frivolous. She had set her heart on ruling in the great leather merchant's house, and she did not know how to bear her disappointment. I have sympathy for her myself. When I saw her... Saw her? I started, upsetting a small work-basket at my side, which for once I did not stop to pick up. You have seen her? I repeated dropping my eyes from the patient to fix them in my unbounded astonishment on Miss Althorpe's face? Yes, more than once. She was. If she were living, I would not repeat this. A nursery governess in a family where I once visited. That was before her marriage, before she had met either Howard or Franklin Van Burnham. I was so overwhelmed that for once I found difficulty in speaking. I glanced from her to the white form in the shrouded bed, and back again in ever-growing astonishment and dismay. "'You have seen her,' I at last reiterated, in what I meant to be a whisper, but which fell little short of being a cry. "'And you took in this girl?' Her surprise at this burst was almost equal to mine. "'Yes, why not? What have they in common?' I sank back. My house of cards was trembling to its foundations. Do they, do they not look alike? I gasped. I thought, I imagined. Louise Van Burnham looked like that girl? Oh, no, they were very different sort of women. What made you think there was any resemblance between them? I did not answer her. The structure I had reared with such care and circumspection had fallen about my ears, and I lay gasping under the ruins. End of chapter 24「Chapter 25 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 25. The Rings. Where are the rings? Had Mr. Grice been present, I would have instantly triumphed over my disappointment, bottled up my chagrin, and been the inscrutable Amelia Butterworth, before he could say, Something has gone wrong with this woman. But Mr. Grice was not present, and though I did not betray the half I felt, I yet showed enough emotion for Miss Althorpe to remark. You seemed surprised by what I have told you. Has anyone said that these two women were alike? Having to speak, I became myself again in a trice, and nodded vigorously. Someone was so foolish, I remarked. Miss Althorpe looked thoughtful. While she was interested, she was not so interested as to take the subject in fully. Her own concerns made her abstracted, and I was very glad of it. Louise Van Burnham had a sharp chin and a very cold blue eye, yet her face was a fascinating one to some. Well, it was a dreadful tragedy, I observed, and tried to turn the subject aside, 
which fortunately I was able to do after a short effort. Then I picked the basket up, and perceiving the sick woman's lips faintly moving, I went over to her and found her murmuring to herself. As Miss Elthorpe had risen when I did, I did not dare to listen to these murmurs, but when my charming hostess had bidden me good-night, with many injunctions not to tire myself, and to be sure and remember that a decanter and a plate of biscuits stood on a table outside, I hastened back to the bedside, and leaning over my patient, endeavored to catch the words as they fell from her lips. As they were simple, and but the echo of those running at that very moment through my own brain, I had no difficulty in distinguishing them. Van Burnham, she was saying, Van Burnham, varied by a short, Howard, and once by a doubtful, Franklin? Ah, thought I, with a sudden reaction, she is the woman I seek, if she is not Louise Van Burnham. And, unheeding the start she gave, I pulled off the blanket I had spread over her, and willy-nilly drew off her left shoe and stocking. Her bare ankle showed no scar, and covering it quickly up, I took up her shoe. Immediately the trepidation she had shown at the approach of a stranger's hand towards that article of clothing was explained. In the lining, around the top, were sewn bills of no ordinary amount, and as the other shoe was probably used as a like depository, she naturally felt concern at any approach which might lead to a discovery of her little fortune. Amazed at a mystery possessing so many points of interest, I tucked the shoe in under the bedclothes and sat down to review the situation. The mistake I had made was in concluding that because the fugitive whose traces I had followed had worn the clothes of Louise Van Burnham, she must necessarily be that unfortunate lady. Now I saw that the murdered woman was Howard's wife after all, and this patient of mine her probable rival. But this necessitated an entire change in my whole line of reasoning. If the rival and not the wife lay before me, then which of the two accompanied him to the scene of tragedy? He had said it was his wife. I had proven to myself that it was the rival, was he right, or was I right, or were neither of us right? Not being able to decide, I fixed my mind upon another query. When did the two women exchange clothes, or rather, when did this woman procure the silk habiliments and elaborate adornments of her more opulent rival? Was it before either of them entered Mr. Van Burnham's house, or was it after their encounter there? Running over in my mind certain little facts of which I had hitherto attempted no explanation, I grouped them together and sought amongst them for inspiration. These are the facts. 1. One of the garments found on the murdered woman had been torn down the back. As it was a new one, it had evidently been subjected to some quick strain not explainable by any appearance of struggle. 2. The shoes and stockings found on the victim were the only articles she wore which could not be traced back to Altman's. In the redressing of the so-called Mrs. James Pope, these articles had not been changed. Could not that fact be explained by the presence of a considerable sum of money in her shoes? 3. The going out bareheaded of a fugitive, anxious to avoid observation, leaving hat and gloves behind her in a dining-room closet. 
I had endeavored to explain this last anomalous action by her fear of being traced by so conspicuous an article as this hat, but it was not a satisfactory explanation to me then, and much less so now. Four, and last, and most vital of all, the words which I had heard fall from this half-conscious girl. Oh, how can I touch her? She is dead, and I have never touched a dead body. Could inspiration fail me before such a list? Was it not evident that the change had been made after death and by this seemingly sensitive girl's own hands? It was a horrible thought and led to others more horrible, for the very commission of such a revolting act argued a desire for concealment only to be explained by great guilt. She had been the offender and the wife the victim, and Howard, well, his actions continued to be a mystery, but I would not admit his guilt even now. On the contrary, I saw his innocence in a still stronger light. For if he had openly, or even covertly, connived at his wife's death, would he have so immediately forsaken the accomplice of his guilt? To say nothing of leaving to her the dreadful task of concealing the crime? No. I would rather think that the tragedy took place after his departure, and that his action in denying his wife's identity, as long as it was possible to do so, was to be explained by the fact of his ignorance in regard to his wife's presence in the house, where he had supposed himself to have simply left her rival. As the exchange made in the clothing, worn by the two women, could only have taken place later, and as he naturally judged the victim by her clothing, perhaps he was really deceived himself as to her identity. It was certainly not an improbable supposition, and accounted for much that was otherwise inexplicable in Mr. Van Burnham's conduct. But the rings, why could I not find the rings? If my present reasoning were correct, this woman should have those evidences of guilt about her. But had I not searched for them in every available place without success? Annoyed at my failure to fix this one irrefutable proof of guilt upon her, I took up the knitting work I saw in Miss Oliver's basket and began to ply the needles by way of relief to my thoughts. But I had no sooner got well under way than some movement on the part of my patient drew my attention again to the bed and I was startled by beholding her sitting up again, but this time with a look of fear rather than suffering on her features. Don't, she gasped, pointing with an unsteady hand at the work in my hands. The click, click of the needles is more than I can stand. Put them down, pray, put them down. Her agitation was so great and her nervousness so apparent that I complied at once. However much I might be affected by her guilt, I was not willing to do the slightest thing to worry her nerves even at the expense of my own. As the needles fell from my hand, she sank back and a quick, short sigh escaped her lips. Then she was again quiet and I allowed my thoughts to return to the old theme. The rings, the rings. Where were the rings and was it impossible for me to find them? End of chapter 25 Chapter 26. A Tilt with Mr. Grice. At seven o'clock the next morning my patient was resting so quietly 
that I considered it safe to leave her for a short time. So I informed Miss Althorpe that I was obliged to go downtown on an important errand, and requested Crescenza to watch over the sick girl in my absence. As she agreed to this, I left the house as soon as breakfast was over, and went immediately in search of Mr. Grice. I wished to make sure that he knew nothing about the rings. It was eleven o'clock before I succeeded in finding him. As I was certain that a direct question would bring no answer, I dissembled my real intention as much as my principles would allow, and accosted him with the eager look of one who has great news to impart. "'Oh, Mr. Grice!' I impetuously cried, just as if I were really the weak woman he thought me. "'I have found something, something in connection with the Van Burnham murder. You know I promised to busy myself about it if you arrested Howard Van Burnham.' His smile was tantalizing in the extreme. "'Found something?' he repeated. "'And may I ask if you have been so good as to bring it with you?' He was playing with me, this aged and reputable detective. I subdued my anger, subdued my indignation even, and smiling much in his own way, answered briefly, "'I never carry valuables on my person. A half-dozen expensive rings stand for too much money for me, to run any undue risk with them. He was caressing his watch-chain as I spoke, and I noticed that he paused in this action for just an infinitesimal length of time as I said the word rings. Then he went on as before, but I knew I had caught his attention. Of what rings do you speak, madam? Of those missing from Mrs. Van Burnham's hands? I took a leaf from his book and allowed myself to indulge in a little banter. Oh, no, I remonstrated. Not those rings, of course. The Queen of Siam's rings. Any rings but those in which we are specially interested. This meeting him on his own ground evidently puzzled him. You are facetious, madam. What am I to gather from such levity? that success has crowned your efforts and that you have found a guiltier party than the one now in custody possibly i returned limiting my advance by his but it would be going too fast to mention that yet what i want to know is whether you have found the rings belonging to mrs van burnham my triumphant tone the almost mocking accent i purposely gave to the word you accomplished its purpose he never dreamed I was playing with him. He thought I was bursting with pride, and casting me a sharp glance, the first by the way I had received from him, he inquired with perceptible interest, Have you? Instantly convinced that the whereabouts of these jewels was as little known to him as to me, I rose and prepared to leave. But seeing that he was not satisfied and that he expected an answer, I assumed a mysterious air and quietly remarked, If you will come to my house tomorrow, I will explain myself. I am not prepared to more than intimate my discoveries today. But he was not the man to let one off so easily. Excuse me, said he, but matters of this kind do not admit of delay. The grand jury sits within the week, and any evidence worth presenting them must be collected at once. I must ask you to be frank with me, Miss Butterworth. And I will be, tomorrow. Today, he insisted. Today. 
Seeing that I should gain nothing by my present course, I reseated myself, bestowing upon him a decidedly ambiguous smile as I did so. You acknowledge, then, said I, that the old maid can tell you something after all. I thought you regarded all my efforts in the light of a jest. What has made you change your mind? Madam, I decline to bandy words. Have you found those rings, or have you not? I have not, said I, but neither have you, and as that is what I wanted to make sure of, I will now take my leave without further ceremony. Mr. Grice is not a profane man, but he allowed a word to slip from him, which was not entirely one of blessing. He made amends for it next moment, however, by remarking, Madam, I once said, as you will doubtless remember, that the day would come when I should find myself at your feet. That day has arrived. And now, is there any other little cherished fact known to the police which you would like to have imparted to you? I took his humiliation seriously. You are very good, I rejoined, but I will not trouble you for any facts. Those I am enabled to glean for myself, but what I should like you to tell me is this, whether, if you came upon those rings in the possession of a person, known to have been on the scene of crime at the time of its perpetration, you would not consider them as incontrovertible proof of guilt. Undoubtedly, said he, with a sudden alteration in his manner, which warned me that I must muster up all my strength if I would keep my secret till I was quite ready to part with it. Then, said I, with a resolute movement towards the door, that's the whole of my business for to-day. Good morning, Mr. Grice. Tomorrow I shall expect you. He made me stop, though my foot had crossed the threshold, not by word or look, but simply by his fatherly manner. Miss Butterworth, he observed, the suspicions which you have entertained from the first have within the last few days assumed a definite form. In what direction do they point? Tell me. Some men, and most women, would have yielded to that imperative, tell me, but there was no yielding in Amelia Butterworth. Instead of that, I treated him to a touch of irony. Is it possible, I asked, that you think it worth while to consult me? I thought your eyes were too keen to seek assistance from mine. You are as confident as I am that Howard Van Burnham is innocent of the crime for which you have arrested him. A look that was dangerously insinuating crossed his face at this. He came forward rapidly, and joining me where I stood, said smilingly, Let us join forces, Miss Butterworth. You have from the first refused to consider the younger son of Silas Van Burnham as guilty. Your reasons then were slight and hardly worth communicating. Have you any better ones to advance now? It is not too late to mention them if you have. It will not be too late to-morrow, I retorted. Convinced that I was not to be moved from my position, he gave me one of his low bows. I forgot, said he, that it was as a rival and not as a coadjutor that you meddled in this matter. And he bowed again, this time with a sarcastic air I felt too self-satisfied to resent. "'Tomorrow, then,' said I. "'Tomorrow.' At that I left him. I did not return immediately to Miss Althorpe. I visited Cox's millinery store, 
Mrs. Desberger's house, and the offices of the various city railways. But I got no clue to the rings, and finally satisfied that Miss Oliver, as I must now call her, had not lost or disposed of them on her way from Gramercy Park to her present place of refuge, I returned to Miss Althorpe's with even a greater determination than before to search that luxurious home till I found them. But a decided surprise awaited me. As the door opened, I caught a glimpse of the butler's face, and noticing its embarrassed expression, I at once asked what had happened. His answer showed a strange mixture of hesitation and bravado. Not much, ma'am, only Miss Althorpe is afraid you may not be pleased. Miss Oliver is gone, ma'am. She ran away while Crescenza was out of the room. End of chapter 26「twenty seven of that affair next door this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox org recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota that affair next door by Anna K Green chapter twenty seven found I gave a low cry and rushed down the steps don't go I called out to the driver I shall want you in ten minutes, and hurrying back I ran upstairs in a condition of mind such as I have no reason to be proud of. Happily, Mr. Grice was not there to see me. Gone? Miss Oliver gone? I cried to the maid, whom I found trembling in a corner of the hall. Yes, ma'am, it was my fault, ma'am. She was in bed so quiet I thought I might step out for a minute but when I came back her clothes were missing and she was gone. She must have slipped out at the front door while Dan was in the back hall. I don't see how ever she had the strength to do it. Nor did I, but I did not stop to reason about it. There was too much to be done. Rushing on, I entered the room I had left in such high hopes a few hours before. Emptiness was before me, and I realized what it was to be baffled at the moment of success. But I did not waste an instant in inactivity. I searched the closets and pulled open the drawers, found her coat and hat gone, but not Mrs. Van Burnham's brown skirt, though the purse had been taken out of the pocket. "'Is her bag here?' I asked. "'Yes, it was in its old place under the table.' and on the washstand and bureau were the simple toilet articles i had been told she had brought there in what haste she must have fled to leave these necessities behind her but the greatest shock i received was the sight of the knitting-work with which i had so inconsiderately meddled the evening before lying in ravelled heaps on the table as if torn to bits in a frenzy this was a proof that the fever was yet on her, and as I contemplated this fact I took courage, thinking that one in her condition would not be allowed to run the streets long, but would be picked up and put in some hospital. In this hope I began my search. Miss Althorpe, who came in just as I was about to leave the house, consented to telephone to police headquarters a description of the girl, with a request to be notified if such a person should be found in the streets or on the docks, or at any of the station-houses that night. Not, I assured her, as we left the telephone, and I prepared to say good-bye for the day, 
that you need expect her to be brought back to this house, for I do not mean that she shall ever darken your doors again. So let me know if they find her, and I will relieve you of all further responsibility in the matter. Then I started out. To name the streets I traversed or the places I visited that day would take more space than I would like to devote to the subject. Dusk came, and I had failed in obtaining the least clue to her whereabouts. Evening followed, and still no trace of the fugitive. What was I to do? Take Mr. Grice into my confidence, after all? That would be galling to my pride, but I began to fear I should have to submit to this humiliation, when I happened to think of the Chinaman. To think of him once was to think of him twice, and to think of him twice was to be conscious of an irresistible desire to visit his place and find out if anyone but myself had been there to inquire after the lost one's clothes. Accompanied by Lena, I hurried away to Third Avenue. The laundry was near 27th Street. As we approached, I grew troubled and unaccountably expectant. When we reached it, I understood my excitement and instantly became calm for there stood Miss Oliver, gazing like one under a spell through the lighted window-panes into the narrow shop, where the owner bent over his ironing. She had evidently stood there some time, for a small group of half-grown lads were watching her with every symptom of being about to break into a mischievous display of curiosity. Her hands, which were without gloves, were pressed against the glass, and her whole attitude showed an intensity of fatigue which would have laid her on the ground had she not been sustained by an equal intensity of purpose. Sending Lena for a carriage, I approached the poor creature and drew her forcibly from the window. Do you want anything here? I asked. I will go in with you if you do. She surveyed me with strange apathy, and yet with a certain sort of relief, too. Then she slowly shook her head. I don't know anything about it. My head swims and everything looks queer, but someone or something sent me to this place. Come in, I urged. Come in for a minute, and half supporting her, half dragging her, I managed to get her across the threshold and into the Chinaman's shop. Immediately a dozen faces were pressed where hers had been. The Chinaman, a stolid being, turned as he heard the little bell tinkle which announced a customer. "'Is this the lady who left the clothes here a few nights ago?' I asked. He stopped and stared, recognizing me slowly, and remembering by degrees what had passed between us at our last interview. "'You telly me Lely die. How him Lely when Lely die?' "'The lady is not dead. I made a mistake. Is this the lady?' "'Lely talk. I no see face. I hear speak.' "'Have you seen this man before?' I inquired of my nearly insensible companion. "'I think so, in a dream,' she murmured, trying to recall her poor wandering wits back from some region into which they had strayed. "'Him Lely!' cried the Chinaman, overjoyed at the prospect of getting his money. "'Pletty speak! I knowy him! Lely want clo?' Not tonight. The lady is sick. See, she can hardly stand. And overjoyed at this seeming evidence that the police had failed to get wind of my interest in this place, I slipped a coin into the Chinaman's hand, 
and drew Miss Oliver away towards the carriage I now saw drawing up before the shop. Lena's eyes, when she came up to help me, were a sight to see. They seemed to ask who this girl was and what I was going to do with her. I answered the look by a very brief and evidently wholly unexpected explanation. This is your cousin who ran away, I remarked. Don't you recognize her? Lena gave me up then and there, but she accepted my explanation, and even lied in her desire to carry out my whim. Yes, ma'am, said she, and glad I am to see her again. And with a deft push here and a gentle pull there, she succeeded in getting the sick woman into the carriage. The crowd, which had considerably increased by this time, was beginning to flock about us with shouts of no little derision. Escaping it as best I could, I took my seat by the poor girl's side and bade Lena to give the order for home. When we left the curbstone behind, I felt that the last page in my adventures as an amateur detective had closed. But I counted without my cost. Miss Oliver, who was in an advanced stage of fever, lay like a dead weight on my shoulder during the drive down the avenue. But when we entered the park and drew near my house, she began to show such signs of violent agitation that it was with difficulty that the united efforts of Lena and myself could prevent her from throwing herself out of the carriage door, which she had somehow managed to open. As the carriage stopped, she grew worse, and though she made no further efforts to leave it, I found her present impulses even harder to contend with than the former, for now she would not be pushed or dragged out, but crouched back moaning and struggling, her eyes fixed on the stoop, which was not unlike that of the adjoining house, till with a sudden realization that the cause of her terror lay in her fear of re-entering the scene of her late terrifying experiences, I bade the coachman drive on, and reluctantly, I own, carried her back to the house she had left in the morning. And this is how I came to spend a second night in Miss Althorpe's hospitable mansion. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 Taken Aback One incident more, and this portion of my story is at an end. My poor patient, sicker than she had been the night before, left me but little leisure for thought or action, disconnected with my care for her. But towards morning she grew quieter, and finding in an open drawer those tangled threads of yarn, of which I had spoken, I began to rewind them, out of a natural desire to see everything neat and orderly about me. I had nearly finished my task when I heard a strange noise from the bed. It was a sort of gurgling cry which I found hard to interpret, but which only stopped when I laid my work down again. Manifestly, this sick girl had very nervous fancies. When I went down to breakfast the next morning, I was in that complacent state of mind natural to a woman who feels that her abilities have asserted themselves, and that she would soon receive a recognition of the same at the hands of the one person for whose commendation she had chiefly been working. The identification of Miss Oliver by the Chinaman was the last link in the chain connecting her with the Mrs. James Pope, who had accompanied Mr. Van Burnham to his father's house in Gramercy Park. 
and though I would fain have had the murdered woman's rings to show, I was contented enough with the discoveries I had made to wish for the hour which would bring me face to face with the detective. But a surprise awaited me at the breakfast table in the shape of a communication from that gentleman. It had just been brought from my house by Lena, and it ran thus. Dear Miss Butterworth, pardon our interference. We have found the rings which you think so conclusive an evidence of guilt against the person secreting them. And, with your permission, this was basely underlined, Mr. Franklin Van Burnham will be in custody today. I will wait upon you at ten. Respectfully yours, Ebenezer Grice. Franklin Van Burnham? Was I dreaming? Franklin Van Burnham? Accused of this crime and in custody? What did it mean? I had found no evidence against Franklin Van Burnham. End of chapter 28 End of book 2 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.